I'd love to have you take your Bibles and open up to Matthew chapter 6 this morning. And I think this is such a good place to come, especially as we step into November. I think November is a month where we should be celebrating Thanksgiving all month long. Uh, Thanksgiving itself, I believe, is a spiritual discipline. We are called to be thankful, not just when we feel like it, but to make it a discipline in our lives to give thanks to God. And, and so this month is just a special month to, to focus in on that. Not saying we shouldn't be thankful all year round, but this is a good month. And the, today, as we step into Matthew 6, I think there's some really helpful things in here. So a large chunk of text, but I want us to read all of it today. I'm not going to read all of it all at once, but uh, we will be reading the whole passage um, throughout the course of the morning. Um, But let's ask God for help, and then we'll jump into our passage today. Let's pray. Uh, God, we thank you so much for this morning. I thank you that you have brought us together. Uh, God, that you've given us a place where we can worship you and open our Bibles together as a church family. Lord, I don't know where each person has come from this week, what their weeks have been like, but it is fitting for us, no matter where we've come from, to pause and to open your word. God, to remember that you are God and we are not. To remember that, that you are the one that we look to in all things. And so in our time in your word today, Lord, uh, open our hearts, make us to be teachable people, open our ears so we can hear and understand. And God, I pray that you would also give me mercy as I speak and not feeling so well and very aware of my need for you. And of course, when we feel good or feel bad, we're, we're no more or no less in need of your help. We're just more aware of it. And so, Lord, thank you for reminders that we do need you. And so as we do this this morning, God, we certainly ask for you to help us and we know that you are faithful in doing so. So we pray this in your son's name and through the spirit. Amen. Well, let's go ahead and read, and I'm going to read the first uh, 18 verses of Matthew 6, and uh, this is a continuation. Uh, Jesus is preaching his Sermon on the Mount, and uh, here we go. Jesus says this, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you. As the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, They have received their reward, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be thy your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces 
that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may be seen, not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And we will pause there for a moment. So we continue Jesus' Sermon on the Mount here. And I think it's so important that we are very mindful of what we talked about, looked at last week as Ben preached, that the righteousness of God is far higher than we often realize. And attaining righteousness on our own is, uh, is too much for us. We can't attain righteousness uh, through our best efforts. The only way that we are able to stand before God The Father is through the work that Jesus did on the cross. It's his righteousness that he clothes us in so that when God looks at me, he sees Christ. And so as we come to this passage today, Jesus is talking about several spiritual disciplines or we might call them practices of righteousness. We see in the very first verse here, he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. He's not saying don't practice righteousness. He's saying don't do it in front of other people. Don't do it with the wrong motive. But this idea of practicing your righteousness, and the very first thing we have to keep in mind here is as Jesus is talking about practicing righteousness, he isn't speaking about earning righteousness, uh, but rather a response to having already received a righteous status. The practices of righteousness aren't us trying to earn favor with God, it's us responding to what God has already done in our lives. And you might ask, well, why, why should I do these things? If I get the righteous status of Jesus... And I can't do anything to be righteous. Why practice these things, these practices of righteousness? Uh, fasting doesn't seem that fun, so why do it? And I think there's several reasons. There's several benefits to these practices. And I think, first of all, they were taught and they were practiced by Jesus. He taught his followers to do them, and I think we should do them as well. And they also are things that help us express gratitude and humility toward our Heavenly Father. They they give us a way to express gratitude for what God has done. And third, I think this is a really key thing. They are formative. Spiritual disciplines, especially when done in community, uh, help mature us. And, And let me comment on that a little bit. I think there's this amazing aspect to how God has designed us. And that God has designed us in such a way that sometimes our actions uh, have to come before our feelings. In our, our cu- culture, we put a lot of emphasis on only doing things if your feelings are there. If I don't feel it, I shouldn't do it. That would be hypocritical, right? But there are so many things in life where actually uh, we, we find that once we do something, we actually generate the feelings through doing it. On your study sheet, I say actions often precede feelings. For instance, I might not feel like being a very generous person, but sometimes it's through the action of generosity that I find that feelings of generosity develop in my heart. In my family life, sometimes we don't treat our family members really well. We, we're, we use short words with them. Or, our, our, our tone of speech is unkind. Uh, we speak to our family members in ways that we wouldn't speak to common strangers. And sometimes there's that feeling of, uh, I don't feel like being kind. I'll be kind when I feel like being kind, when I feel kindness in my heart. But, but what I have found in my life is often it's through doing acts of kindness that kind feelings start developing in my heart. And God knows this about us, and so he gives us these spiritual practices, not saying only do this when you feel spiritual, 
But do this because you might find that the spiritual feelings develop out of doing them. So there's this wonderful element where it matures us, it develops us. But there's also a danger here. And the danger is this, that we can take these things that are meant to be formative and turn them into transactions. We can make them transactional. Uh, rather than being a tool for growth, we, we misuse them and we end up relying on ourselves. Uh, and, you know, this is, this is a, a dangerous thing. In fact, when we do the right thing but with the wrong motive, it has the ability to, to cause us to be blinded to our actual spiritual need. You know, when I give in a way where I make sure other people are seeing me give, and people start saying, that guy is so generous. What a good guy. You know what? I start listening to that and I start believing what people are saying about me. And before long, I'm saying, you know what? I am a good guy. God is so lucky to have me on his team. And, and, and we can begin to believe our own PR. Very dangerous. And so Jesus offers some words of correction here. And we want to look at this because... We are shaped through our spiritual practices, but when we misuse spiritual practices, they can actually harm us. So let's look at these three spiritual practices, these disciplines that Jesus uh, discusses in chapter 6. And let's look at giving. What is giving all about? What does it do for us? Why does God call us to give? I mean, God has every resource available to him. He doesn't need us to give, and yet... He, he does. He commands us to give generously. And one of the things that giving does is it reminds me that everything I have is a gift from God. You see, we live in a culture that says what you have is, you know, your efforts, your hard work. In fact, everything in our advertising system kind of is based on this. You worked hard. You deserve it. You deserve it to have it your way, right? You need to treat yourself. And, and we, we work hard, we get some money, we go to the restaurant, we sit down, we get that big juicy burger, and it's like, I deserve this. And if we listen to our culture, there's no reason to thank anybody for that burger. I bought it. And you see, the act of giving, often it slows us down and it causes us to say, God, okay, sure, I worked hard, but every opportunity that's been opened up for me, Every gift I have, every mental faculty I have, it's all a gift to God from your hand. And so in the act of giving, I'm reminding myself, this isn't my stuff. This is God's stuff that he's entrusted to me. Uh, This teaches us, and it's good for us. There's another aspect to giving that I think is really valuable too. In, In giving, God gives us great dignity. Because he could take care of the needy without our help, but he gives us dignity by working through us. But you see, there's that danger. It's a very fine line between receiving the dignity that God gives us, being able to participate in God's work, to stealing glory from God. And when we start to steal glory from God, when we start to let people know what I'm giving, when we start to seek, you know, people's adoration because I'm so generous, what we're really doing is I'm setting myself up as a counterfeit savior. It's kind of like I'm saying, Isn't it good Jesus came to save you? Isn't it good I came to save you too? And friends, we only need one Savior. If giving is intended to help me recognize my dependence on God, then I shouldn't use it in such a way where I'm trying to get people to recognize their dependence on me. And so the thing that's supposed to generate uh, that dependence, 
when misused, it can start building up my ego instead. Let's look at prayer. Prayer is similar. It can be misused. Uh, Oftentimes when we look at prayer, what happens is because prayer has this act of intercession in it, and we bring needs before God, sometimes we can start misunderstanding prayer as primarily being about getting stuff. And we can start looking at prayer and measuring the success of our prayer based on, do I get what I ask for? And if I'm not getting what I ask for, then there must be something wrong with how I'm praying. Well, the Bible actually said this isn't how prayer works. In fact, when Jesus in verse 7 is talking about when you pray, do not heap empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. You know what Jesus is getting at here? In the ancient Near East, in that culture, one of the common practices in pagan, especially pagan religion, was if you learn some secret phrase, or especially if you learn some, like a God's secret name, you could exert control over that God. And that's, that's what people would do who, who were into sorcery and things like that. And, and, and this idea of if I have a way to manipulate God, I can get him to do what I need. And sometimes we actually unknowingly treat God that way. I'm not getting what I want from God. I, you know, I must be praying wrong. I must be using the wrong words or I must be using the wrong forms. Or, or maybe I need to use this strategy over here because that's how that person prays and, and they get everything they want. And you know what happens when we do that? We basically treat God like a giant galactic vending machine. That if I can just figure out how to push the right buttons, I can get what I want. But notice what Jesus says, that the Father knows what you need before you ask him. This is not some passive galactic machine waiting to be operated. This is the sovereign creator of the universe who knows everything that you need. Now, in our modern day, we might wonder, well, if God knows everything, why, why should I even talk to him? If he knows what I'm going to say, what's the point of prayer? Through the biblical scope, what, it says, what, what the fact that God knows everything means is if God knows everything, there's nothing that I can't bring before him. The very God who calls me beloved child knows all my weaknesses, all my failures, then in prayer, there's an a invitation to a relationship that's completely open that says, come to God, bear your soul to him, ask forgiveness for your sins, because you're not going to mention something and God's suddenly going to be like, oh my word, I didn't know that about you. I, I think I'm going to have to rethink this whole relationship over. That will never happen with God. And see, that was prayer is prayer is a relational tool. For us to come in with confidence to God. He knows my imperfections. He calls me beloved child. But this relationship's missed when I use prayer for self-promotion. You know, one of the things that I think is key about prayer too is prayer is about me aligning myself with God's will. This was the heartbeat of Jesus. In John 4.34, Jesus said, says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. And to accomplish his work. And as we look at the, the Lord's prayer that's given here, you see that God's will and the God's kingdom are big centerpieces of this prayer. Oftentimes when I will teach kids about prayer, I'll use this analogy. I don't know if it's a good analogy, but I've always appreciated it. It's like me in a boat holding a rope tied to the dock. And the dock represents God. And a misunderstanding of prayer is I pull on this rope to pull God to me, to get God to do my my will. But what prayer actually is, is me pulling the rope and pulling myself 
to God, aligning myself with his will. When the Bible speaks about God giving you the desires of your heart, that comes when your heart is aligned with his heart. Now, fasting is an interesting one because fasting, I think, is something that doesn't get practiced a whole lot anymore, and it should be. Isn't fasting, what fasting does, it's a wonderful thing. It strengthens my ability to say no to my sinful appetites while growing in humility. There's this amazing thing that God developed in us that uh, not every appetite we have is sinful, but there's this amazing thing that as I say no to my physical appetite, it kind of strengthens this muscle to say no to sinful appetites. And if you're the kind of person who has some vices or you have a hard time saying no to certain things, um, you might find a lot of help through fasting. And a lot of times that we, we struggle in these areas is because we don't practice this much and, and that muscle doesn't get any exercise. I say here, fasting helps us grow in humility as well. Actually, the expression used for fasting in Leviticus, when God is giving commands about the Day of Atonement, and that's the first time that fasting is commanded as the Day of Atonement, the literal words used are humble your souls. That's how they refer to fasting. It's a sense of humility in fasting, and and certainly I think that's very true because fasting brings you right uh, face-to-face with your own weakness very quickly. It's very hard to have delusions of immortality when you are fasting. Uh, I, I fast quite a bit, more, actually for some medical reasons. And, you know, I'm a pretty stout guy. And I don't tend to feel too weak too often. But tell you what, four or five days into a fast, I'm feeling pretty fragile. And any delusions I have of immortality go right out the window. Uh, so fasting does this. It, it develops humility in me. It reminds me of my dependence on God. It, it, it helps me to train myself to say no to wrong appetites. But here's the thing. When I misuse fasting, the only thing I do is I actually do the reverse. I strengthen my vanity. I don't humble myself. And when Jesus is talking about people who are disfiguring their face, it's not just having a gloomy expression. They were literally taking like ash and putting it on their face. They weren't maintaining their, their hygiene. They weren't doing their hair. They were bringing attention to themselves. And it's so easy to take these good gifts, these tools that God has given us, and to misuse them. So what's going on? What's, what's the core issue here? Why, why do people, why do we have a tendency to misuse these things and to try to draw attention to us? Well, Jesus is going to get into this, and what we see is it, there's a lack of true faith. People are placing their hope in something else. Go ahead and look at Matthew 6, verse 19 with me. I want to read the next part of this. Jesus goes on, he says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, the verses 22 and 23 are a little difficult for us to understand because they operate on 
how in the ancient world people understood vision to work. And the terms that Jesus is using for a good eye and a bad eye have some cultural meaning. A good eye, the, the, the word he uses, uh, has this connotation of a singleness, an a, a undivided uh, devotion. Whereas a bad eye was a common expression for, for greed. Um, for instance, when Jesus in Matthew 20, 15 is telling the story of the vineyard owner who had some uh, workers who are grumbling about their pay. This is what the vineyard owner says in Matthew twenty fifteen. He says, don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? And the word used for envious there is, do you have a bad eye because I'm generous? And so what Jesus is looking at here is basically the idea of, are you a person who has a, a undivided loyalty toward God? Or are, are, is your eye fixed on money? And if your eye is fixed on money, basically this is like trying to navigate the spiritual life, being blinded spiritually. A similar statement for us might be what your eye is fixed on becomes a window to your soul. And you see there on your associate, I say money is one of the most common idols that we develop. And idols, anything we look to for our hope other than God, anything that determines our actions. And, and as we look at how, what people seek in money, whether they're seeking security, power, personal worth, esteem, independence, or pleasure. If they're seeking those things from wealth, it will ultimately fail. Now, understand this. Jesus doesn't say anything bad about money here. He's not saying money is bad. And he's not saying that wealthy people are evil. There's a number of people in the Bible who are wealthy and who are, are very righteous people. He's also not saying that having money is unimportant. What he is saying is regardless of who you are, whether you're poor or you're rich, regardless of your financial position, putting your hope in wealth is foolish and it will not sustain you. In fact, if you're poor, your greatest need is not money. You might have a legitimate need, but if that legitimate need becomes your greatest need, then you will end up serving money and money will become your God. And you will find yourself doing things for money that you never thought you would do. You see, sometimes the people who struggle the most with serving money are people who don't have it. You don't have to have money to serve money, do you? What's Jesus getting at here? Is this just a, a little section about money? Well, it's not. What he's talking about is worldly wealth. Are you serving worldly wealth? Is that where you place your hope? Because it's that when you put your hope in something other than God that you start to misuse the spiritual disciplines it's when these things start coming out in your life in different ways. And he's going to move on here and look at this in a broader perspective. Let's look at verse 25. He's going to talk about anxiety in general. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? Why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. That's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire. Will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. 
But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So Jesus now is broadening the scope beyond just serving money or serving worldly gain. He's looking at anxiety in general, looking at when anxiety rules over us. Do my anxieties rule over me? What's the difference between being responsible and anxieties ruling over me? Well, I think one way we might discern this is what consumes the majority of your thought? What dictates your action? When we put our hope in anything other than God, these things will start determining what we do. I mean, it it might be me doing something at work that I know is not right, but I, I need that year end bonus or I need to get my bottom line up. I need my reputation to be a certain way. It might be in the classroom. I need to pass this class. It's my hope, so I'll cheat a little. It might be in my marriage. I, I need to feel fulfilled sexually, so I'm going to open myself up to a relationship I know is wrong. Uh, see, the point of what Jesus is saying isn't that fulfilling needs is wrong or unimportant. God cares about your needs, but when we put our needs before God, then these needs become God to us, and they cause us to do things that we would never do otherwise. Looking at that responding to God's word section, Jesus points us then to God's faithfulness and care. That's what this whole final section of Matthew 6 is about, is reminding us that God is faithful. He he cares about your needs, but they can't come as a priority over God. Otherwise, we'll find ourselves compromising every ethic or moral value to meet those needs. How does this apply to the spiritual disciplines in the first part of chapter 6? Well, we see that when we start valuing other things, when we start putting our hope in other things, then we start using even our spiritual disciplines and what should be worship of God to instead serve those other things. It's interesting that Jesus tells a parable in Luke uh, chapter 18. You'll look at this in your community groups this week. But it's interesting because he tells the story of a Pharisee who's going to break every one of these spiritual disciplines, prayer, fasting, and, and giving. He misuses all of them. And this is the opening to the story. As it says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. You see, it... it the, the misuse of these things came from, I'm trusting in myself. And therefore, I'm going to take these things that are supposed to be all about God, but I'm going to turn them into all about me. This might be because I care more about what people think of me. That's the most important thing is my reputation. And so I'm going to, in my giving, I'm going to let people kind of know what I'm giving so that they'll think highly of me. And we have all sorts of ways to do this. There's cultural ways we do this. We might use purposely spiritual language to manipulate people around me or or to make myself look better in their eyes. Ooh, look how spiritual he is. He used a big three-syllable word. We might do this through the humble brag. Boy, I was really stretched this month in what I gave, but God blessed me through it. I mean, we're really good at making our actions seem non-self-serving while making sure people notice us. But the thing is, is we know what's happening in our own heart. So what do we do about this? How do we correct this if we have a tendency towards this? And what Jesus points us to is a correction of our priorities. I think we see this very evident in the Lord's Prayer. If you take a look at that in verse 9 with me, 
See, the very first thing that we see is Jesus tells his followers to address God as, as Father. And the term that's used here is Abba. It's a term of endearment. Similar in our culture as if we were to say Daddy. And what we see here is a recognition of my acceptance. It's me saying I don't need to, to earn acceptance in how I pray. I come into prayer already accepted. The next thing we see is this, this declaration, hallowed be your name. And I think a lot of times we skip over that really quickly. Who knows what that means? And we get right to the next part. But that's really important. Hallowed be your name. What that basically means is, is a request that God would make his name famous. It, takes, it makes priority of God and his reputation. The very next thing in the prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done. It puts the kingdom first. It puts God's will first. And yes, other needs are addressed in here. My daily needs are addressed, but, but they're addressed by trusting God. I think really verse 33 captures the heart of this. Verse 33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you. See, one of the things we need to see is Jesus doesn't present multiple packages of Christianity. It's not the economy model. And that's for people who just want to live their life. And then there's the luxury model. And that's for those kingdom people. And Jesus presents one model of Christianity. He presents one way to follow God. And that is a way that puts God first, puts the Father's will first, puts the kingdom first. So he says, seek first the kingdom. And you know, it's really hard to misuse prayer or fasting or giving when you're seeking God's kingdom rather than your reputation. How does this work in, in, in my life? Well, how do I seek God's righteousness, his kingdom? Well, if it's in the secular world, then as I'm making decisions at work, even very small decisions, day-to-day decisions, I'm not thinking profit first, bottom line first, my reputation first. I'm thinking, how will this affect God's reputation? People know I'm a Christian here. Will this make God's name famous or, or, or will this cause scandal? In school, plagiarization is a great way to make myself look smart. But it, it doesn't do anything for God's name. It doesn't make his name famous. It, it hurts his reputation. What about in parenting? You know, I think a lot of times in parenting, it's easy to think about my reputation first. I want people to see that I'm a really good parent. So, you know, I might say, no, you can't wear that. There might be nothing wrong with it. It just makes me look like a dumb parent. I don't want to be the parent whose kid's seen wearing that goofy outfit out in public. And this becomes about my reputation. But what does parenting look like when I put God first? It changes my decisions. It changes how I interact with my child. Or maybe I don't put my reputation first as a parent. Maybe I put my child first. My child becomes my priority and therefore, I invest everything in my child and in their academic progress and their sports progress and every other bit of progress, but I don't help them slow down and recognize who God is in their life and to seek God. And so in all these areas, we have to make God a priority. How do we make God a priority? Well, interestingly, the answer is actually in the spiritual disciplines. That it's through spiritual disciplines that mature us that is where we start to form ourselves and remind ourselves of who God is. When I give in the way that God tells me to give, when I fast in the way God tells me to fast, when I pray in the way God tells me to pray, uh, he redirects my, my, my heart to prioritize him. 
We're going to come right now to another spiritual discipline, not one that Jesus addressed, but one that certainly as a church we are commanded to do, and that's communion. And you know, communion is just like the spiritual disciplines that we looked at today. Communion is very beneficial to us. It has a formative element to it, but it can also be misused. And the church of Corinth that Paul writes to in 1 Corinthians, he rebukes them because they were mishandling communion. Communion looked really different to them uh, than how we do it. It was more of a feast, but they had people gorging themselves while other people went hungry. They had people getting drunk at communion. And Paul writes them and he rebukes them. And then he reminds them what communion's all about. And I want to read his words as we come to communion this morning. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. Paul says this, For I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then he gives a warning here. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. You see, there's a warning here in misusing communion. See, communion is intended to bring us, to help us slow down and humbly come before God to say, God, the only way I stand before you is through the righteousness of Christ, his righteous status placed on me. You know, I know we get busy in our work, in our social life. Uh, We are so busy that sometimes we don't really pause and reflect on my priorities in life. And one of the benefits in the practice of communion, we come to this place this morning where we pause. It's a time to pause. And it's time for you to reflect, what are my priorities? Am I putting God first? Am I seeking first the kingdom? Or am I seeking something else? And, you know, even communion can be misused in a public setting. You can begin thinking about what the people around you are seeing. Are people seeing how contrite I look, how prayerful I look? This is not a time to be thinking about this. This is a time for you to come before God. A time of confession. A time to consider priorities. So we're going to do that. The way we celebrate communion here at Sunset Bible Church, we pass the plates, the bread, the cup. And we, as the elements come by, hold on to it. I'll say a few words and we'll partake together. But I'm going to invite those who are serving communion, please come up um, right now. And I'm going to pray and then we're going to go ahead and serve the bread. So gentlemen, after I pray, you can go ahead and begin serving the bread. God, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for these things, these, these spiritual disciplines, these, these practices of righteousness that you've given us. Oh, not to, not to earn anything with you, but God, to be formed by you, to be able to express our gratefulness to you. And Lord, this morning, as we come to the communion table, I pray that we would use this in the right way, that this would be a time for us to reflect, a time for us to evaluate our priorities in life, oh God. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would help us in this. We thank you that as we come to this, we remember the very reason we're doing this is because we have a great Savior, that I'm not the Savior, 
we have a king, and I'm not the king. And we are so thankful that you are God, and we are not. So help us to remember these things as we come to the table. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.